Today's episode is in black and white, presented in 4x3 format and spikier. (laughs) Welcome to the Snyder Cut of Gom Jabbar. I don't know why I have to wear this spiky armor while we record. Wear it! It's thematic. (laughs) Welcome to Gom Jabbar your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. Mm. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. And Leo, we got some unfinished business. (laughs) Yeah, to explain the Snyder Cut (laughs) joke at the beginning. (laughs) We are continuing our exploration of The Road to Dune, which is a book published in 2005 that chronicles Frank Herbert's journey to publishing Dune. But folks, today we get the unpublished chapters. We get the scenes that didn't make the final cut. Frank Herbert himself wrote them. That's right. Exciting. Ah, So exciting. If you'll recall, back in part one, we talked about Frank's journey in getting Dune published, where he got the ideas from, some of those letters back and forth between his agent and his publisher, And basically how Dune and Dune Messiah found their way into the pages of Analog Magazine first, and then as final published works. Right, yeah. Today, like you said, we're going to be diving into some of the things that didn't make it into those final published (laughs) works. The cut chapters and the cut scenes that didn't make their way to the page. In many cases, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for editors and publishers giving good feedback. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get through some housekeeping before we jump into the meat of today's episode. That's right. First and foremost, folks. Yes. Spoiler warning. Mm -hmm. Today's episode will contain spoilers for both Dune and Dune Messiah. We will be talking about cut chapters from both of those books. So make sure you have read both before you listen to today's episode. Conveniently. Oh, if only we had a way. We have... (laughs) (laughs) We have full book club series that guide you through chapter by chapter, page by page, through both Dune and Dune Messiah on this very podcast. So, no better time to read than now. It's true. They're good books. (laughs) Check them out. (laughs) The best way to support us and this show that we work so hard on is becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. This is where you can get ad-free episodes. You get bonus bloopers and clips. We're going to record a couple today. Not bloopers. Well, probably bloopers. (laughs) But intentionally, (laughs) we're going to record. The bloopers just happen. They do just happen. And uh, you'll have access to our exclusive Discord, where you can bother us any time of the day. (laughs) Shout out, by the way, to our Quisats Hatterack level members, Kaysake and Nate Hyde. Uh, Guys. Guys. Thank you so much. The chapters detailing your lives will stay in my book in its earliest drafts and the final publication. (laughs) And in our hearts forever. And in our hearts, yeah. (laughs) Right, that too. (laughs) Another great way to support this podcast is to check out our brand new Dune-themed merchandise at gomjabarshop.com. Yeah. Personally, we are huge fans of the new Arakeen High School Kangaroo Mice apparel. (laughs) It is amazing. And other people like it too. So go check it out. I wore it at work and got compliments on it from people who clearly didn't know that it was related to Dune. It's it's an incredible design. Shouts again to Mick Wiggins. Yeah. 
Pops. The only reason this podcast has legs. <laughs> right. Finally, if you like this sort of kind of meta conversation, let us know. Or, or if you hate it, let us know. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com is a tried and true way of getting in touch with us. We accept feedback. We accept jokes. We accept uh, your favorite factoids about how long different animals have been on the planet. Whatever you want to say. Even if you're just saying hi. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Say hi. For sure. And actually, a little caveat. If you're going to send hate mail, go ahead and just forward that to leowiggins at gmail.com. Oh, <laughs> thankful. Well, no, that's someone else. I don't have that email address. <laughs> right. Whoever the other Leo Wiggins out there I mean, is going to get all our hate mail. You'll just add hate mail to the hate mail I already send that email address. <laughs> Give me that email address, you bastard. <laughs> No, don't harass whoever owns that account. No, no, yeah, don't do that. That's a that's a joke. Please don't bother that person. All right. Let's now take a short break. But don't go anywhere, folks. You're going to want to stick around for this one. When we come back, we are diving into some of the scenes and chapters that never made it into the final pages of Dune. Stick around. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed your break. Let's get into it. Let's talk about the unpublished scenes and chapters from the early drafts of Dune and Dune Messiah. We are going to be briefly summarizing what happens in each of a few selected scenes. We didn't do all of them. They were too many. (laughs) And then we're going to highlight any kind of insights we can glean from them throughout that process. Now, the deleted chapters and scenes fall broadly into basically two categories, right? Like one, what Frank decided to change right? And, and we'll see conversations that never happened, that became different conversations, etc., etc. And two, what Frank trimmed to keep the novel as lean as possible, often due to word count issues. And um, I get that sense a lot with the Messiah chapters <laughs> in, in, yeah. in particular. And go figure, Messiah is like a much shorter book. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it worked. <laughs> now, on the issue of canonicity, right. just to be clear, make sure we're all on the same page, what we're going to talk about today is definitely not canon material. Right. It literally was never published. So it's not really canon, but it is fun to sort of read through some of these early thoughts and ideas that Frank was still working through in those early drafts of these books. And it's fun to kind of ask what if, right? Right, right. Like what if some of these chapters had made it into the book? How would it have changed the story we love so much? So It's a fun thought exercise, but definitely not something that can be considered canon in the Dune universe. Right. Now, two quick disclaimers. Uh, First, as mentioned, there are too many scenes to talk about. Uh, So we've picked kind of the most significant, interesting ones to talk about today that include the most like changes and stuff. I mean, it was either that or like skimp on the deep dive details. (laughs) And that is a very not Gondrabar thing to do. Cannot do against our very nature. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. On another level, that's very meta of us as well. Right. To cut chapters 
in a discussion about cut chapters. Oh my god. We need a road to this episode of Gamjabar <laughs> featuring excerpted bullet points that never made yeah. the cut. Yeah, we'll we'll make sure we leave this script in a publicly accessible part of the internet so right. after our debts someone can access it and publish all the uncut parts. 25 years one of our sons will write a book about it. But 70% of the book is just going to be our son's shitty writing. <laughs> Oh my god. I already hate my fucking son. Jesus. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh also, how do I really feel about Brian Herbert's writing? <laughs> it's not that bad. It's it's for humor. It's jokes. Anyway, the second disclaimer here is that some of these are dense. So we are going to be very very broad in our summaries. If you have follow-up questions or if you want to hear more about something we touch on, let us know gamjabarpodcast.gmail.com. You can also pick up this book. It's very accessible. I got a used copy on a, on a, just a book selling website. You know how the internet works. Uh, for like eight, nine bucks. And uh, again, 70% of it is Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson stuff. But 30% of it is these cut chapters and a lot of the stuff we talked about on last episode. Right. Okay. That's enough teasing you, mm. dear listener. Is it Let's though? do it. Is it that? Well, no, it's never enough it's teasing. It's never enough. <laughs> Tease me all day, baby. Let's dive into some of these unpublished chapters, starting with hmm. some quick scenes between Paul and Reverend Mother Moheim early in the book. Yeah. On last episode, we talked about how a lot of the early feedback for Frank is this book is too front-loaded. Mm-hmm. So the trend here is conversations that ended up happening much later in the book between different characters are happening with Paul and Reverend Mother Moheim before they leave Kaladin, right? We're going to be very brief. We're going to share just what jumps out at us, basically. So this first scene, this first cut scene from Dune, is when Jessica wakes Paul, summoning him to meet Moheim for the Gamjabar test. Hey, that's where, hey, that's where that's you us. listen to Gamjabar. And uh, try not to tell all of your friends about it. <laughs> Literally impossible. Literally impossible. I tell every person I talk to about my <laughs> Now, the only notable moment from this little conversation is when Paul asks Jessica if Moheim is her mother. He's like, yo, is she your mother? Is that who she is? Mm-hmm. And Jessica scolds him. She's like, that's a dumb question. <laughs> I never knew my mother. You know that, right? The Bene Gesserit, very secretive with their breeding program and all that. Right. Nevertheless, I think this is notable because the Dune Encyclopedia, years later, and also Brian Herbert, both went on to establish that Moheim is, in fact, Jessica's mother, despite the fact that in a conversation with William McNelly, Frank said, no, I don't like that detail. (laughs) It is fun to see this topic teased in this very early version of Dune. Yeah. Interesting that it was cut and then brought back by others. I know. Okay, the second scene that stood out to us here is shortly after the Gamjabar test, after Jessica rejoins Paul and Moheim, there's a couple of tidbits that are worth noting. Right. First off, Moheim says, quote, A human can kill what she, he loves, given necessity enough. And there's something always to remember, lad. A human recognizes orders of necessity that animals cannot even imagine. End quote. Mm. That is some fun foreshadowing. Yeah. 
for Paul's choices, not just throughout this book, but well into Messiah as well. Right. Oh, my God. It's this very interesting definition of what it means to be human versus what it means to be an animal, at least according to the Bene Gesserit. This idea that animals only respond to their most basic needs. Yeah. And humans can make choices out of necessity that maybe is even like antithetical to their own needs. Right. It also feels very in the voice of Moheim, which is nice. Yeah. Clearly, even in these early versions of the book, Moheim had a very like clear tone of character. Yeah, for sure. Now, the second thing worth noting in this scene is Moheim talks about Jessica's role during Paul's Gamjabar test, during the hand in the box situation. Right. And this is what she says. Quote, think of what it was truly that your mother has just done for you. Think of her waiting outside that door there, knowing full well what went on in here. Think of her with every instinct screaming at her to leap in here and protect you, yet she stood and waited. Think on that, young human. Think on it. There's a human indeed. Your mother. End quote. Ah, I, I love it. I love this. Yeah, it's so good for so many reasons. <laughs> Yeah, and what's incredible, you noted this in our script, Denny Villeneuve basically put this back in the movie. Yeah. We got to see Jessica stand right outside that door, reciting the litany against fear to herself, as she knows her son could be facing his death inside the room. Yeah. I also realized that I've worked on this script for so long, I've referenced this in episodes that are already out. Like, oh, yeah, remember when we <laughs> talked about this? Here we are talking about it. <laughs> so, yeah, the fact that Moheim is iterating the Gamjabar test is not just for Paul. It's also testing Jessica. Yeah. Jessica betrayed the Bene Gesserit. Is she lost to them? Well, here's the Gamjabar test for Paul and the Gamjabar test for Jessica. It's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. For the most part, all of the cut scenes that we're going to discuss today, I kind of agree should have been cut. Right. But this one, ugh, this one I strongly feel should have been kept in. It adds so much to that Kamjabar scene and adds so much to our understanding of Jessica as well. That this is a test not just for Paul, but for his mother. And that she puts necessity above her own sort of base human desire of protecting her son, thus passing the Benny Gesserit human test. Yeah. It's amazing. It adds so many layers to the scene. Even just the quote, like even just that quote, if there was a way for us to work that into the story, because I also like how it shows Moheim respects Jessica. Yeah. No matter what else happens between them, she's like, nah, Jessica's got control. Mm -hmm. Like, put some respect on her name. Jessica's right. pretty. She's great. Yeah, agreed. Now, the third and fourth scenes don't really add anything <laughs> they're basically <laughs> part of the same conversation there's a lot of rambling kind of circular conversations between paul and moheim about what it means to be human and basically it's all just like way too slow for like page 35 of this book yeah that's trying it's very hardest to get going yeah genuinely great to see this rambling kind of circular conversation stuff cut right uh, especially early on Plus, it's kind of confusing. Oh, yeah, totally. This, like, human-animal stuff that Moheim is talking about. I remember the first time I read Dune all those years ago, 
literally so confused in this scene that I thought Paul was a robot or something. And that's oh, why he yeah. needed to undergo a test. Yeah. You know, like this whole like <laughs> philosophical human versus animal thing that Benny Gesserit are so on about is very Dune, but you don't know what Dune is 30 pages into the book, right? right? It's like a concept and style totally. of Frank's that doesn't really click with you until you're much later in the book. So to have it so early and to like have so much of it, totally understandable why it was cut. And I'm glad someone was like, hey, Frank, buddy, you got to like really reel it in with this like human animal stuff. It's confusing. Now I'm wondering, when did Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep get published? Uh, 1968. Ooh. Well, hey, this beats it by a few years. Yeah. I was going to say, Frank could not have then anticipated, you know, he's got page 25 or whatever, Jessica and Moheim both going, I wonder if Paul's human. <laughs> you know, 10 years later, if people have read Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, a.k.a. Blade <laughs> Runner, people are going, is this a fucking android child? <laughs> <laughs> like, right, this right. a robot boy? <laughs> Harrison Ford? Hey, is Paul Atreides Harrison Ford? <laughs> <Ba-da-da-da>. <laughs> <Da-da-da>. <laughs> wow, that joke took some twists and turns, folks. But it grabbed its hat underneath the door at the last second. And that's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> that's what matters. So... The next scene, scene number five that we want to talk about, is slightly longer, and there are some things worth exploring here. Moheim in this scene is explaining to Paul the nature of the Kwisatz Haderach, and she kind of straight up mentions that dark, wild space within every cell that the Bene Gesserits are unable to access. Right. It's that place that we see much later in the actual book after Paul takes the water of life and goes into his... Kwisatz Haderach coma. Right, yeah. So it's cool to see that that this like idea of this dark place within uh, was here even in these early drafts, an idea that Frank was clearly working with for a while. She explains to Paul that the other men who've undergone the spice agony have gotten as far as like looking at this dark space, but they didn't survive the excursion. They died. And so Moheim offers Paul some advice. Quote, that which submits rules, Hmm. end quote. Also in this scene, Paul sort of deduces that the Bene Gesserit can control the sex of their children. Mm -hmm. And that really echoes where in the final print of the book, Paul sort of deduces the Bene Gesserit's focus on politics and how they are kind of the string pullers behind the scenes in the Imperium. Right. So again, that this like Paul Moheim, you can see the early like clay that Frank was still fashioning yeah. with these scenes. Like some of the interactions are still there and the shape of the conversation is there, but the details are still being hammered out. Also the details, like establishing that the Bene Gesserit is an organization that focuses on politics is a much easier to grasp topic for a new reader yeah. than getting into metabolic control <laughs> right. on page 20. <laughs> right, Prana Bindu is like... Right. It's <laughs> too a early in the book for that. It's a lot to throw at people. Same thing with that kind of elemental space, yeah. right? It's like, cool, glad we got that eventually, but good that it came in that kind of third, yeah. third, uh, third act. One, once we were already like deeply invested, then it wasn't weird to explore this like dark place. Right. And in fact, I remember feeling very, wow, 
In a book that has already gotten me used to weird, crazy stuff, here's a really weird, crazy thing. Yeah. I think it's masterfully executed, kind of where it ended up in the book, just as a reader, as an experience. Yeah. Also, a little crazy that in this early version, we know that they, you know, they tried and died, blah, 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 about past Kwisatz Haderach, you know, members. But this suggests that a number of men have actually tried to go through the spice agony. Yeah. Which... I don't know, is established in primary canon. So that's like a very interesting possibility to consider that the Bene Gesserit actually threw some dudes at that elemental space. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, they keep fucking dying. Um, <laughs> Dang it. We gotta, Wrong genetics. We got to fix the genetics. <laughs> we got to breed up some hardy stock. <laughs> Jessica, <laughs> you good? Anyway. None of these men are the rock. <laughs> Not one of them's Dwayne Johnson. It's <laughs> 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 very silly. <laughs> that 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 was actually Jessica's daughter and Fade Rautha, the perfect combination, and their son would have been Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne the Rock Johnson, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is all a prequel to whatever world wrestling series <laughs> he was in. Now our final scene. <laughs> that silliness aside, our final scene is Moheim explaining the function of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood in a post-Butlerian universe. Now, she gets pretty heavily into the content of Paul's kind of givers and takers speech. Yeah. She gets kind of weirdly expositional and like very specific about the yeah. history of the <laughs> Butlerian Jihad. Right. Again, this stuff early on in the book is just way too much for an, a new reader. And it does feel like Frank hashing out how he wants the universe to work, but you have time. Frank, you've got 800 pages. Yeah. So getting it out of the first 30 pages of this sci-fi book in the 1960s, solid choice. Yeah. And it's interesting that all of these like Paul Moheim ideas in these scenes we've talked about weren't necessarily cut from the book. Right. They were just repositioned or trimmed down like some of the like heavy slow exposition was cut down and some of these ideas like the dark place or the give or taker idea were just pushed too much later in the book right which got to keep the front end of the book moving quickly yeah absolutely the next cut excerpt answers a question that's been on all of our minds since day one of reading dune this thufri howitt guy uh-huh does he or does he not fuck? <laughs> That's the question. Gurney? Definitely. Duncan Idaho? Right. Canonically. Yeah. Every day. Every night. Every yeah. few hours, honestly. It's, it's a problem. <laughs> it's getting in the way of his work. Thufir, on the other hand, I was never sure. We get a short scene between Paul and Thufir. Now, in this tiny scene, and this is leading up to their conversation about Arrakis, Paul kind of idly comments how little he knows about Thufir's life. He's like, yeah, I don't really know about your personal life. You been married? Do you have kids? Thufir answers these questions in the most incredible way. Have I been married? Quote, I've had women. Oh? <laughs> Do I have kids? Quote, like is not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Which, Jesus, what? dude. He's like, flip a coin. I've got kids, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. So this confirms, yeah, he's had women, sure. He then scolds Paul for not taking their time together seriously. Which, yeah, if you're sitting in AP Chem asking your teacher about their like favorite movies, you're not learning chemistry. <laughs> right. That's just a fact. 
Nevertheless, I can understand why this is cut. Thufir Howitt's kind of a... He's fine. We don't really need to dwell on him. And honestly, the chapter that ended up in the final book felt whole. Right. So just wanted to point out, yes, for all of you wondering, Thufir Howitt has had women. May have children. <laughs> May have... Right. <laughs> Maybe Where a father. Don't know. <laughs> we, I'm the best men's hat in the universe. I don't know if I have kids. <laughs> I need that conversation with Duke Leto. I might be a father. Fucking what was that, Thufir? <laughs> anyway, our Solari production is down. <laughs> Oh god. This is this is Thufir's six shots of Sappho into the night. Just yeah. <laughs> holy shit. Poor Thufir, man. That's why our Solari production is down. You're paying your fucking child care. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the next cut scene from the book. Oh, this one's so good. This is a incredible scene between Paul and Gurney. Yeah. Where we get some amazing exposition and background about Gurney. Yeah. And so we want to talk about it for a few minutes here. The scene takes place somewhere around the sparring scene on Kaladin. Mm -hmm. And it begins with Gurney laying out all of the weapons, kind of double, triple checking them as he does, making sure things are working and are safe. Right. And his mind is wandering, sort of thinking about Paul's childhood and his future as the Duke. Paul and Gurney then talk about how much Gurney hates the Harkonnens. And Gurney explains. He brings up this ballad that Paul has heard many times before. And we learn that this ballad actually tells the story of someone named Ernzo the Goldsmith, who was a slave to Count Beast Raban of House Harkonnen. Yeah. Now, as the ballad recounts, Ernzo was ordered to embellish the handle and blade of Count Raban's sword, and he did so. But he hit a curse in the design, damning the Harkonnens. Yeah. Sneaky Ernso. He loved to see it. Just middle fingers. <laughs> right. Raban, unfortunately, finds this curse and, in a fit of rage, has Ernzo brutally executed and also sends all of Ernzo's family to the slave pits. Woof. Classic Beast Raban, classic Harkonnens. This is where Gurney drops a bombshell. Quote, I'd tell you a thing now that's known to very few in this house. I'm properly called Gurney Halleck Ernson, the son of Ernso. <sighs> it was Hawat's men brought me off Giddy Prime that time they nearly got the Baron. I was just a child, but I showed aptitude for the sword, there being motive behind my learning. Duncan Idaho found a way for me to train at his school on Ginaz. I had some large bids for my services when I graduated, lad, but... You understand now why I came back to the Atreides and why I'll never leave short of being carried out in the basket. End quote. Good lord. Oh my god. My god. I want to point out too, Paul says something in this conversation where he's like, before, you know, Gurney drops this bombshell, Paul's like, yeah, I've heard you sing that song, whatever. I know the words. I've heard it. Gurney's been fucking singing this song about Ernso. For years, apparently. Yeah. And yeah. people around the Kaladin Castle are like, oh, yeah, that's that fun, weird, sad ballad about some guy named Ernso. Gurney's out here singing about his dad. <laughs> right, right. What? Oof. Uh, 
It's tragic. I mean, the scene reveals so much, not only about Gurney, but the world building here as well. Right. Like, for example, it does a really great job of showing us this loyalty that Duke Leto Atreides inspires among amongst his men. Yeah. Gurney had the choice to go work for another house. He probably could have made more money somewhere else, but he's loyal to the Atreides for the way they saved him, for the way they treated him. And thus he comes back. And to your point, the scene also shows us that Gurney's music is almost this way of processing his trauma. I mean, like you said, he's literally out here singing about his dad, (laughs) about his family in the slave pits. Yeah. And it's clear that music is like this integral part of Gurney's life (laughs) and possibly a way he like processes some of the hardships he's been through. And clearly not talking to people about it. <laughs> nobody <laughs> no, no, fucking no. No knows. therapy. No. no therapy. No, no, no. M- men will sing on the ballast before going to therapy. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been writing this new song. That sounds awfully like your life. <laughs> no. No, it's... Uh, do, you, do you want to talk about it? No. No, no, it's good, man. It's just a good ballad. It's just a good... Ba- Enjoy the music. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> What I also love about the scene is it shows us how much Gurney trusts Paul. Right. He literally is like, very few people in this house even know that I am Ernso's son. Right. The fact that he tells Paul this, obviously, it's a very vulnerable moment for Gurney. And it's also an eye-opening moment for Paul. He's a young duke about to travel to Arrakis. His world is about to change forever. He has to grow up. And this is part of his transition into adulthood learning about some of that darker stuff out there that even his mentors are dealing with. Right. It's true. I also, I, I love the idea that Gurney may have trained at the Guinness Swordmasters School. Yeah. <laughs> Gurney is a legendary fighter and he's known to be one of the best fighters in the universe. And while we don't know much about Guinness, like there is shockingly little about the Swordmasters School in Guinness other than what Brian Herbert's written about it in the last, you know, 20 years we know duncan idaho studied there and he's a phenomenal fighter right so it would explain why gurney is also a great fighter other than maybe some like innate you know violent talent you can say that but i do like there being some reasons that this young kid would grow up to be such a formidable foe yeah it also builds the lore around Guinness in a way i really appreciate like you might have my ears perked up when Gurney's like, I had some bids for my service after I graduated. Uh-huh. Fucking what? So you get your like undergrad sword degree and then companies are like unpaid sword internship. <laughs> and then you <laughs> go and you do a year of unpaid sorting where you're sorting for a year and then Right. And then they're like, Okay, we can start you at sixty five thousand dollars full benefits and you're like, dope. And then you're just cutting people. Like, that's such an interesting idea. That makes sense in a universe that has these kind of feudalistic, it's that marriage of feudalistic fighting and combat and kind of a modern (laughs) educational system. Yeah, it's cool. I want a doctorate in sword fighting. (laughs) (laughs) Can I get a master's in slip tips? (laughs) Right. I don't know that you'll be getting many bids out there, though. Oh, that's true. Or at least many legal ones. Uh, but that's more about my personality and in- interview skills. <laughs> <laughs>
What a great scene, though, all around. Yeah. Like, this is another scene from today's discussion where I was like, damn, this would have been cool to see in the book. Yeah. I don't know that it was entirely necessary, and of course, I can understand why it was cut, but we learned so much cool shit about Gurney. We've done a whole episode about Gurney Halleck, in fact. Right. And having this in the book itself would have been really cool. And it would have, again, like you're saying about Ginas, like sort of added to the world building as well. Right. Now, it does kind of diminish some of the mystery about the universe, right? We've talked about how Moheim being Jessica's mother makes the whole cast and the whole universe smaller. Yeah. I think the same thing happens if you say, oh, here's a tremendously skilled fighter. Why are they skilled? Well, they went to that one school, right? And then it's just anybody who went to that school is a legendary fighter. Why don't more fucking people go to that school? Yeah. It just makes the universe so small. Well, Leo, the the entrance exam. Real oh, tough, I hear. That's true. It's like real Harvard tough. and Yale. <laughs> yeah. Your daddy's got to pay a lot of money to get you into Guinness, or you got to get in on a scholarship. Yeah, there was a whole scandal about that on Twitter. You know, someone's <laughs> like, oh, man, we really, that person paid for their kid to get in. Oh, so much. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> No school is without its scandals, for sure. Oh, it's true. I, I hear your point, though. It certainly does make it sound like Ginaz is the only place people are learning to fight, which, of course, we know is not true. It's like Ginaz, Seleucus Secundus, <laughs> right. the Dunes of Arrakis, uh, and the Bene Gesserit, and that's it. It's like, <laughs> otherwise, everyone's just doing their best. <laughs> <laughs> Those fucking loser non-sword fighters. Those fucking idiots. <laughs> well, in any case... It's fun to read about it now. Again, it's really fun to get this backstory, but I think we're both more or less glad that it wasn't in the final version, although we'll come back to that yeah. at the uh, at the end. Right, for sure. We are going to take a very quick break here, but don't go anywhere because when we are back, we are going to be talking about some entire chapters as well as some additional scenes that were cut from Dune. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, folks. Let's continue diving into these cutscenes and chapters from Dune. Next up, we have a scene between the Baron Harkonnen and our guy, Peter DeVry University. Hey, go Woodchucks. <laughs> Woodchucks. That's the best one yet, I think. <laughs> I liked Binturongs, but <laughs> no one knows what that fucking animal is. <laughs> yes. I still don't know. We <laughs> actually it. talked about this cutscene in our Piter episode. Yeah. But the gist here is that Piter and Baron are having a conversation. And Piter brings up during the conversation this moment from his childhood where he saw a woman fall to her death from the third floor balcony. Sure. And at first, the Baron's like, what? Okay. So what? And then Piter reveals that this woman was his mother. <laughs> okay. Which he didn't know at the time. To be fair, he only learned this later in life. Apparently, it still didn't really matter to Piter, which, again, sort of reinforcing this idea that he is a twisted mentat, a sociopath. 
the death didn't ultimately super, super affect him, but he did glean one important lesson from it. He tells the Baron that witnessing this death showed him that once the thing that is going to kill you is in motion, your death might as well be considered done already. You're already dead once that thing is in motion. Right. And the most critical point, at least in Piter's view, is the moment of the toppling. That's where your death can or cannot be prevented. But once you're already falling, it's too late. Right. Your destiny can't be changed or controlled at that point. The Baron interprets this as like a veiled threat against him. But this little story about the woman falling also reveals to us a bit about Piter. And honestly, sort of his short-sightedness and all these computations he's done against the Atreides and this whole Arrakis plot that he and the Baron and the Emperor have put together. Right. Because as we know later in the book, Yui and Leto actually do end up changing destiny. They die, of course, but they end up saving Paul and his mother. And Piter himself ends up dying as well. Because of the tooth. <laughs> the tooth. So it, it's an interesting philosophy, I guess. And it's a short little scene back and forth between Piter and the Baron. And we learn a bit about Piter's family. But ultimately, I feel like it doesn't add a whole lot to the story. Besides revealing some of Piter's arrogance and telling us a bit about his mom. Makes sense that a twisted Mintat would be maybe a little brash in his estimations of when things can be changed and everything. Yeah. Next up, we have a new chapter, which is called From Caladan to Arrakis. This chapter comes with an aside, suggesting in the margin uh, that it was cut purely due to length, for what that's worth. And in this chapter, we're with Paul in the Atreides frigate aboard the Guild Highliner as they await their departure to Arrakis. Now, we see a fair amount of the bureaucracy involved with traveling via Highliner, which is kind of fun world building, but nothing super happens in this chapter. Yeah. An employee of House Atreides is like, hey, Paul, you can go work on that thing, Gurney said. And Paul's like, no, I have to wait for Jessica. And the guy's like, okay, bye. (laughs) And then he leaves. And then Paul's just in the room still. But Paul reveals to us in this moment that he has decided that he's going to continue his Mentat training which I super appreciate (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm. because that's kind of left out of Dune. Considering Paul being a Mentat is kind of an important thing for the second and third acts of Dune and for Dune Messiah. I always felt that this was missing. Like I always felt that we we missed Paul going, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to continue working on being a Mentat. Yeah. Rather than just oh, that's like piano class that my parents made me do. Yeah. (laughs) Nope, done forever, never doing it again. Mm -hmm. Cool to see him having made this decision. And in this little chapter, he actually enters into a floating state of Mentat practice, which I thought was super cool. And the chapter ends on this really neat description of the sort of Mentat computation mind, highlighting kind of how powerful Mentats can be. Quote, over and over within Paul's awareness, the lesson rolled, and at its hub lay the single conceptualization. The human being can assess his circumstances and judge his limitations within those circumstances, all through a mental programming, never risking his flesh until an optimum course has been computed. 
The human being may do this within the compression of elapsed time so short that it may be called instantaneous. End quote. Wow. I think that's so cool that mentats are so mentally capable that given circumstances, they can choose the optimal route for their safety. You know, they are Dr. Strange in that, like, I've seen a million <laughs> universes and this is the one one that we survive in. Yeah. They can get to that one in an elapsed time so short that it may be called instantaneous. I mean, that's better than Dr. Strange. He was sitting in that pose for like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> if he was a mentat, would have been immediate. So right. I think that's so cool. I love that. Yes. Mentats are just better Sorcerer Supremes is the lesson we've all learned here today. True. <laughs> canon. <laughs> not canon. Canon. It's not, it's not canon. <laughs> I also will point out, I always felt very strongly that the transition from Kaladan to Arrakis was sudden. We are on Kaladan, on Kaladan, and on Kaladan. And then suddenly we're in the Arakeen Palace. Yeah. And I've always felt like, man, there is a scene missing to carry us from Kaladan to Arrakis. And you could say that this mirrors the main character's experience of suddenly you're on this planet. Yeah, okay, sure. But as a reader, it always felt very brief. The other thing is this highliner is populated with all of these houses, houses minor, houses major, and Paul's looking out going, oh, I don't recognize that crest and I don't recognize that. It makes the universe feel big hear the description of the the contents of this guild highliner which i love anything that makes the universe feel bigger that makes it feel less like there are three <laughs> houses in dune and then one that was made up for the video game in 1992 that everyone remembers <laughs> i like the idea of making the universe bigger and introducing these kind of minor houses and, and things like that we also get this really fun onboard announcement from the guild in this chapter quote you will be at your destination within a subjective day and a half, end quote. Which, as a sci-fi nerd, there's always that question of like, okay, we are like warping space, we are dropping into the void, we are doing the thing that gets us somewhere faster than light. But what does that look like? Like, what does that feel like? Yeah. Well, a subjective day and a half, cool. But that's not an objective day and a half, so maybe it's immediate. Like, one second they're at Caladan, the next second they're at Arrakis. But the people have experienced a day and a half in the in-between because time is relative. I don't know. But I think that's the sort of thing that really gets my mind going as a sci-fi mm. fan. Yeah. Very fun. I'm starting to understand why you love Andy Weir. I I love Andy Weir so much. <laughs> His books are great. Which is funny because I'm the opposite. I lean more towards like fantasy sci-fi. Like, yeah. I don't really care about the sci part of it. I don't want to hear about the equations or the math or the, the metaphysics of it all. Right. All right. Next up, we have a short scene titled Blue Within Blue Eyes. Yeah. And this is a conversation between Duke Leto and the Fear Hawat. Not about his many children, but about the Spice Melange instead. Right. They're talking specifically about what the blue within blue eyes means. Right. Like, where does that come from? It's a mystery. Piter DeVry has blue within blue eyes. Many of the natives of Arrakis have it, but they haven't quite made that connection to Spice Addiction. 
one theory that the fear posits is that the eyes are caused by the Arakeen sun, maybe? Right. Another theory he throws out there is that perhaps heavy use of the spice is what causes blue within blue eyes. Right. My money's on theory number two, the fear. <laughs> you sure it's not the sun? <laughs> <laughs> Fear explains to Leto that in a controlled study, the rats that were fed only spice died, quote, with every evidence of narcotic withdrawal symptoms, end quote. Mm. <laughs> Hilariously, this sends Duke Leto into like a spiral. He's like, what? No, the spice can't be addictive. I eat the spice. You eat the spice. It's in all of our diets. I could stop any time. Like, I, it's not addictive at all. What are you talking right, about? Right, right. And Fear is kind of like... Yes, my Duke. Uh-huh, my Duke. But the research shows this. Okay. And he then sort of proposes, well, Duke Leto, the people who can afford enough spice in their life to be addicted don't have any reason to, like, test it, right? Because they just always have access to it. Right. Why worry about withdrawal symptoms when you're never going to have to deal with withdrawal? Right. And, you know, Leto sort of balks at this, and we end the seen on this explanation from the fear quote it wouldn't be the first time a slow poison has been marketed under the guise of a public benefit i invite you sire to remember the history of the use of sartorial of samuta of verite of tobacco of and the quote kind of trails off end quote right interesting scene i mean it's not entirely necessary another one where i totally agree with it being cut because, again, it's kind of like this heavy exposition on, like, a small detail. Right. The blue within blue eyes kind of become a self-explanatory thing in the final book. We understand it's because of the spice. It also weirdly makes Duke Leto sound like this addict who can't stop smoking. Right. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I personally am like, I don't know that that's a side of Duke Leto we needed to see. Right. The scene overall feels a bit rough around the edges. You can tell like some of the writing clearly isn't final and Frank is working through some ideas about Spice. And maybe Frank himself hadn't quite settled on what the blue within blue eyes meant or represented. But it's nice to know that this sort of like small, rough expositional scene right. never made the final cut. Right. Now, our next chapter is kind of titled The Flight from Kynes' Desert Base. And this is a full chapter. That details basically Paul and Jessica finding the ornithopter at the end of the tunnel after parting ways with Kynes. So they've, you know, the, the Harkonnen attack happened. They're escaping down the tunnel. They find the ornithopter. It's a very long <laughs> chapter. Yeah. And it feels rough in comparison to the final book. Throughout it, Paul reads like a child. Like he literally yeah. is just like, I don't know what's happening. Mother, help, you know, and doesn't feel at all like the Paul Atreides that we ended up getting, right? Why is that child asking adult questions is not present in this scene. They also are speculating whether or not these quote unquote free men, aka Fremen, have a culture at all. <laughs> They're like, they, they find a survival guide that explains how to survive in the desert. And Jessica's like, this could only mean that people survive in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> Which clearly means in this early draft, Paul and Jessica are not privy to almost anything about the Fremen culture. Which is very different, right, from what the final version. By the time they are with Kynes' base, 
Jessica's like, yeah, the missionary protectiva is here. I speak the Fremen language. <laughs> Paul has seen visions of the still suit living among the Fremen. Yeah. Very, very different from the final version. They find bags, supply bags in the ornithopter and go through them, wondering at kind of what everything does. And while there isn't really much else to say about this chapter, it's kind of fun to see some of the items of tech that Frank dropped. You know, there's like a pistol and a couple of other things that ended up not being in the final book. But uh, yeah, overall, this chapter, quick, feels a little underdeveloped, but tells us a story of a very different version of Dune, where Paul and Jessica are literally escaping into the desert, knowing nothing of the Fremen. Yeah. Which is a very different, <laughs> a very different story. Yeah. One that I don't know that I'd be interested in reading. Right. The The pacing also feels really off in this chapter because oh, totally. yeah. this is like a very intense part of the book. They're escaping. They're being chased by the Sardaukar. <laughs> Idaho has just died. And they stop to, to like read a couple of PDFs in this. <laughs> like They're like, oh, wait, we got to flip through this book. Yeah. It's very weird. Like multiple paragraphs in this like cut chapter just like describe Paul and Jessica flipping through instruction <laughs> yeah. manuals. They literally set up the still tent. <laughs> They're like, before we escape, let's get in this tent and read. Right. <laughs> Just a silent, sustained reading. Right. Exactly. It, it, the pacing The pacing definitely feels weird. Yeah. And it's also just like, again, once again, very heavy on the exposition. It's clear that someone at some point gave Frank this like advice about exposition where they were like, we don't need a PDF manual on how a still tent works, you know, like as we know it's a tent right. it's in the sand. Uh, and I, I think an elegant solution that Frank found to like have Paul and Jessica know a bit about the Fremen already and not have to do this, like, oh, wait, we got to learn what a thumper is, is just like lean into Paul's prescience. Right. Be like, yeah, fuck it. Paul knows what a thumper is because future Paul learns what a thumper is. His visions show him what it is. Right. And I, I think that actually works out to be like a pretty elegant way to cut down on all the exposition and also allow the main character just to just like know things. Yeah. Because it's in his power set. He just knows it, you know, and we can all move on from it. And it's an explanation that makes sense. And we as the readers get to learn through being shown it rather than being told it. Exactly. Also, it reminds me, you know, Frank in his letter to a fan that we talked about in the last episode was saying like, Every scene has to be lean and efficient and informative and entertaining. So I, maybe it was someone gave him this feedback and maybe this was also just Frank wrote the chapter and went, yeah, this is, I don't know, whatever, moving on. And then later on went back and said, this isn't lean. This has too much exposition. It's clunky. It doesn't read well. You know, and, and I saw a great quote recently, which is, you can't proofread a blank page. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. So... Ultimately, what we get is a version of this where Paul and Jessica find the ornithopter and they take off. And the final version is lean. It's fast. The pacing's good. And uh, that comes out of the slow and steady process of crafting a phenomenal novel. <laughs> right. Totally. And look, I love reading an instruction manual. Nothing better <laughs> than cracking open an Ikea instruction booklet before I put together my new TV stand. How does this Kiorg work? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, shouts to Fialbo. Yo, shouts to Fialbo and Kivik. Oh, oh, so good. The best. Solid. Well, I think I think you and I have similar interior design aesthetic. They're the best pieces of IKEA furniture. <laughs> they are, objectively. <laughs> yeah. IKEA sponsor us. Kivik's 10 out of 10. 
Ikea. Yeah, for real. Okay, let's talk about one more scene here. Yeah. To wrap up the scenes and cut chapters from Dune that we wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. This one is just called Muad'Dib. Yeah. It is a cut scene and it is a weird one. Yep. We saved the weirdest for last here. Mm-hmm. Paul and Jessica are out in the desert at some point. This is before they've encountered Stilgar and the Fremen. And they appear to be dying of starvation or thirst or both. Right. Things are bleak. Paul then sees a couple of kangaroo mice, <laughs> a.k.a. the Muad'Dibs. Right. And, <laughs> folks, he kills them. Yeah. He grabs some pebbles and he throws a handful of rocks right at them to hurt them and then walks up and snaps their necks. <laughs> to be fair, Paul does take a moment here to appreciate them. He says, quote, they were so beautiful. They'll save our lives if we can't find other food. I'll never forget them. End quote. Yeah. Which is kind of him crawling back to his humanity after murdering these two <laughs> cute little mice. Yeah. And there are some other thoughts in this scene from Jessica internally here as she watches Paul slay these animals about him being human and her watching him to make sure that he retains his humanity kind of comes back to it. Right. Again, it feels like Frank pulling back on the whole human versus animal thing. Right. In early drafts, to me at least, it's clear this was like a bigger through line in the story. Your humanity fighting against your base animal nature. Right. And it ended up being cut, which I appreciated. Again, it's like incredibly confusing and sort of heavy and dense. And although this is later in the book, this scene, it's still, you know, it feels like that it's either like commit to that through line or trim down on it. And Frank ultimately ended up trimming down on right, it. Right. The short little scene then ends with Jessica and Paul getting ready to make a fire and cook these mice. And that's it. That That's like the, the little scene in the desert that we never got. Uh, I'm, I'm personally glad we didn't get it. I don't know how you feel about it, but watching this young Paul just like brutally kill these mice, which we know are super fucking cute. <laughs> I was going to say. We saw them in the movie. Yeah. And we also have this amazing tote bag in our merch store with an incredible oh, piece of art yeah. featuring the Muad'Dib mouse. I personally love the mouse. Protect Muad'Dib at all costs. <laughs> yeah. And it, I'm glad we didn't have to watch Paul break mouse necks. That would have been brutal. It feels, it feels too brutal for our main character, especially this early. It is pretty shocking to imagine. Like, picture that scene in the movie where oh the my kangaroo mouse is on screen and the whole audience goes, Aw, it's Aww. so cute. And then just pebble from stage left. <laughs> like, and then Timothy, Timothy Chalamet, Chalamet. bloodlust in his eyes, walks right up to that mouse, grabs that motherfucker by the neck, crunch doesn't even cook it just blood all bites fade. right into yeah. it Rawr. welcome to dune motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> very different yeah. uh, that, that's a bit too lord of the flies you know <laughs> a bit too much heart of darkness it's a little bit david lynch get get some david lynch in the, in the denny villeneuve glad it's not in the uh, final version for sure yeah agreed all right so that wraps up the cut scenes and chapters from dune that we wanted to talk about yes but but folks there's a whole other book what and there's more <laughs> cut scenes and chapters to talk about yeah so let's take a short break and when we come back we're going to be diving into dune messiah mm. and the scenes that never made it into the sequel don't go anywhere welcome back everybody Oh, let's jump in to our highlights 
from the unpublished chapters from Dune Messiah, we were able to fit most of them. Actually, <laughs> These are great. Oh, they're so good. Now, for as many of the unpublished scenes from Dune that felt very kind of rough and like early, these chapters feel a lot more final. Yeah. They feel a lot more in the tone of Dune, which makes a certain sense, right? This is four years after the final publication of Dune. So, you know, Frank has the tone that he settled on for the first book. It makes sense. Right. And for that reason, I'll point out, of all of the things to read, like if you go to the library and you flip through The Road to Dune, or if you, you know, go to a bookstore and you find it and you just want to read it in the bookstore, I would say these are the must-reads because they read like chapters from Dune Messiah in all of their quality and all of the, you know, the character voices and everything. They're just, they're not in the book, <laughs> which is very fun, right? Yeah, they definitely feel much more final. So let's actually talk about this first one. Yes. This chapter that was cut between Alia and the Duncan Idaho Gola hate, and also our boy Edric. This is fucking wild, so buckle up for this, folks. I love this chapter. <laughs> Me too. Alia is in the audience chamber of the keep, and she is receiving Edric, the guild ambassador, along with his intendants. Alia suspects that Edric is up to some shady shit, as we, the reader, know he is. He's part of the conspiracy to take down Paul. Right. And so she uh, basically threatens to have Edric killed. Right. But our guy Edric's pretty bold. He's like, do it. I I'm ready to become a martyr. That's all you'll do is create a martyr of me. Yeah. Alia is not swayed, though, because in a brilliant political move, she invokes a formal trial. She's like, all right, cool. Let's summon the Lancerot judges. Let's do this formally. <laughs> yeah. And this kind of puts Edric on the back foot. Quote, the ambassador flopped over in a sudden agitation, turned his face away from her. The witch, he thought. She had always been more dangerous than her brother. End quote. Pff, that's a sentence. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oof, that last sentence. That's an idea that's definitely in the final version of Dune Messiah that we get. Totally. Yeah. But to have it, a character state it so explicitly is really interesting. It's a very Benny Gesserit thing to do. To like, yeah. okay, direct confrontation's not working. Politics. Right. Yeah. Good on Alia. This also forces Edric's hand. He's like, okay, that was the one thing you could have done. Ah, shit. Okay. So he subtly signals his attendance. And get this. <laughs> buckle up. They throw oh a God. hunter seeker at her. <laughs> And, and it, the way it's described, it's probably like a muscular compulsion that was like programmed. One of them jumps in between Edric and, you know, Alia's people to protect him. And as that attendant moves, here's the excerpt, which leaning into our audiobook inclinations here, quote, Duncan saw something hurtle from the ambassador's attendance toward Alia. With a blurring reflex, Duncan swept his hand across the thing's path, felt the horned calluses on the heel of his hand strike sharp metal. Something buzzed, clattering to the floor. It flopped there like a wounded fish, and he realized they'd dared hurl a hunter-seeker at the Empress' sister. Those bitches! The realization accompanied his own reflexive leap as he stomped on the thing, smashing it before it could find warm flesh and burrow into a vital organ. End quote. Oh my god. <laughs> Fucking crazy. Uh, the audacity. The audacity it's insane and as you can expect the whole room erupts in violence <laughs> no shit 
the Fremen guards attacking the attendants, everything goes to shit immediately. Yeah. And, you know, Hate tries to kind of whisk Alia away to a back passage. Alia's like, bitch, excuse me. I'm Alia, St. <laughs> Alia of the Knife. You know, check yourself. <laughs> so she stays. When the violence settles, a couple of her Fremen guards are dead, to the attendant's credit. Right. But everyone else in the ambassador's party is dead, <laughs> with the sole exception of Edric. And he's basically still keeping like a bold face. He's still kind of maintaining his poker face. He's like, all right, well played. You killed all my people. Fair enough. You're still alive. That's a, that's a problem. So to shake this poker mask, Ollie is like, yo, guard, hand me your lace gun. <laughs> I've got an idea. Oh my God. She shoots a hole in Edric's tank. Doesn't shoot Edric. She shoots a hole in the tank. This is a very like Paul using atomics on the shield wall. <laughs> she uses a laser gun on the tank, caught letting the spice gas that he's submerged in leak out. <laughs> this is so funny. Edric's like, please seal the hole. She's like, seal it yourself, bitch. <laughs> he's like, ah, okay. Alia is savage. I love it's it. It's so brutal. Edric's like, ah. Puts his hand over the hole, his big webbed fishy hand over the hole. Alia takes out her Chris knife uh-huh. and just slowly stabs his hand. <laughs> oh my God. Deliberately drives the point of the Chris knife into his fleshy fish palm. And he like pulls his hand back like, what the fuck are you doing? It's the best. And Abu, what does she do? With the bloody Chris knife that she's now holding. Oh my gosh. Ali is not done. The hits keep coming, folks. She takes this bloody Chris knife and hands it to Banerjee. Nice. And tells him to go get the blood analyzed. Yeah. Because, you know, as we all know, guild steersmen like Edric are biologically and genetically engineered to be more attuned to the spice. That's why they got to live in those tanks. That's how they drive the highliners. Alia wants to know what's different. Yeah. She wants that blood tested. She's curious. How different is this Edric human than me, the Alia human? Because that dude is like a fish man floating in water. <laughs> I want to see his 23 and me. Right. Come on. Right. Show me the history. Now, Edric, at this point, understandably very uncomfortable. His hand is bleeding out. Spice is leaking from his tank. And he's panicking. Right. He names Moheim as his defender. Right. He's like, sure, sure, fine. I'll name someone Moheim. And he begins to bargain with Alia. She, we learn, plans to basically drain his entire tank of the spice air, right. which sends Edric into a tizzy. It's not lethal, right. we learn. Yeah. Like, Edric is not going to die if he can't have breathe the spice air. He can still breathe normal air. But it's going to completely cut him off from prescience, something that we can assume Edric has lived with his whole life. Right. And that is a horrific thought to him. It's almost a form of torture is the way it's presented in this chapter. Right. I also am realizing it won't be lethal because the time frame is small, but probably he'll have withdrawal symptoms if he doesn't have his spice. Over gas. time, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So like, even though, yeah, so there's the losing the prescience and then there's also probably all of the normal chemical withdrawal symptoms as if someone is a heavy smoker multiple packs a day and you go put them in jail, they don't get their cigarettes. Additionally, just from a chemical standpoint, probably also pretty torturous. Right. 
our boy Duke Leto knows all about that. The chapter then wraps up. Alia orders Edric to be kept under guard. And after a little back and forth with hate, she leaves the room intending to tell her brother everything that just happened. Yeah. A little side note here at the end about this conversation between Alia and Hate. Incredible writing that I kind of wish had found its way into Messiah in some other form. Yeah. Frank is out here spinning bars. <laughs> Alia snaps at Hate and says, quote, there are some questions you may not ask. And then Hate replies, when force closes the mouth of inquiry, that is the death of civilization. End quote. Sheesh! Hell yeah. I need that tattooed across my oh chest. Oh my gosh. It's kind of a long tattoo, but I, I support you, bud. <laughs> It'll, Whatever you small want. Small text. It'll be small text. <laughs> really small font. Size 8 font. Yeah. <laughs> then you have a tattoo right underneath. If you're reading this, you're too close to my naked chest. <laughs> <laughs> right. Only my lovers will ever read that quote. <laughs> And it'll be a really, really great icebreaker. <laughs> Nothing like <laughs> mid-sex. Yeah, have you heard about my podcast? <laughs> Gom Jamar. The perfect time to pitch. <laughs> this quote on my chest is actually from a cut scene in the book. <laughs> I've got two very specific episodes to recommend to explain this quote. And then we have like 70 other listenable episodes. So, Right. It'll, it'll totally get her in the mood, trust me. <laughs> What an amazing chapter. Holy shit. Yeah, it's great. I don't know. This is bold of me to say, and maybe I shouldn't say it, but here I go. <laughs> sure. I like this introduction to Edric better than the actual Paul Edric chapter we get in the book itself. Mm, sure. This is so cool. We get an amazing scene with Alia. She gets more to do in the book because in Messiah, she she's still kind of in the background to Paul's story. Yeah. We get to see some of like the wild nature of Alia, right? Like all of Messiah, people are talking about, oh, St. Alia of the Knife, Alia, the wild priestess. Here we get to like see her do some batshit crazy stuff. She's like out here torturing Edric, basically. So it's like a much more dramatic introduction to Edric. We get more time with Alia and we get this really cool scene. I think the only knock against it perhaps is that just the pure audacity of throwing a hunter seeker at the sister of the emperor yeah and the prophet feels like a thing that would require retaliation yeah like the entire jihad would be like oh no that's it we're fucking up the guild now right yeah and maybe that's something that frank was like shit i don't know how to write around this <laughs> like if something like that happened paul would be like there are consequences you do not try to murder my sister yeah edric's desire to become a martyr doesn't work if Paul still has control to destroy the spice. Like, that isn't an option, basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so it feels, it's intense and cool, but it feels a little um, out of character for the theme of Messiah, which is a, which is a lot of, like, plans within plans within plans, and a lot of subterfuge, and, <laughs> and, and like, silent plots. Not just chucking hunter-seekers at each other? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no one's, like, pistol-whipping anyone in Messiah. That's just, that's too on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> still, I still love the scene, though. Well, the next chapter that we get, the next new chapter that we get, is the human distrans. And this appears to take place after the events at Othame's house, so the uh, stone burner scene. Although in this chapter, and for all of the cut chapters actually from Dune Messiah, Paul still has his eyes. So yeah. apparently that was kind of a later decision, maybe we talked about John Campbell hating the the early draft of Dune Messiah. 
maybe that was something that was made to be more epic and more he's the chosen one hero that everyone likes and I don't know like clearly this is not part of this early draft which does bring up questions about what the stone burner then is I guess it's just an explosive weapon yeah anyway in this scene Paul Stilgar and his attendants are basically ready to record and translate the human distrans message contained within Beejaz Beejaz what a great character. Because recall, in the Othame scene, Paul has Bejaz carried away. And we see Hate talk to Bejaz, and we hear about this interrogation slash this questioning in the playback of the Distrans message. This is the chapter where we see it, basically. Now, they set up a Distrans translator, and Paul speaks the code word that will get Bejaz to begin reciting the Distrans message. That code word is Jameis. Oh. Hey, look at that. Yeah. We're a friend of that distrans message. <laughs> Bejaz begins wailing, kind of keening, singing, sing-songing, and the translator gets to work. And there's some preamble, but then Bejaz starts fucking naming names. Mm-hmm. That guy's a traitor. This guy's a traitor. Those four people are traitors. That's crazy. Including a character named Otmo, who ended up in the final version, ended up being Korba. So we get Korba, the plagiarist? plagiarist? Yikes, I don't know. (laughs) Whatever that word was. Korba, Korba, the smarmy asshole Korba, is named in this moment. And that obviously comes up again later. But this causes a problem. Because among the people named, the person holding the translator is implicated. <laughs> so what do they do? Well, Naturally they try they... shooting Paul with a cutter ray. <laughs> murder! <laughs> they try murder. <laughs> when you are called out in front of everyone who matters in the galaxy, just try murdering the guy in charge, you know? Right. Banerjee, who, good Lord, in all these cut chapters, Banerjee's really getting a good viewing. Banerjee jumps in the way. Get down, Mr. President. He jumps in the way of the cutter ray and gets seriously hurt. Not killed, but seriously hurt. Paul, in a very Sightail-like move, kills the aide, throws a knife, and it says it like sprouts from their neck, which is very fun writing from Frank, Yeah, and identifies them. Oh, shit. That's one of the people. That's one of the named people, which that person may not have considered, confirms that Bejaz's message is spot on, right? Yeah. He really played himself with that one. He, fucking, he, he panicked. <laughs> the police ass Hatterick is right there. You've got the cutter ray. I don't blame him. I, I probably would have taken the shot too. But, you know, doesn't work out for him. You're right. Right. Plays himself. So, unfortunately, in all the kerfuffle, right. the translator is broken. Yeah. And when Paul tries to re-trigger B-Jazz and hear the message again to get all the rest of the names they missed, they find out that, uh, uh-oh, his message was erased. Yeah. B-Jazz can no longer relay the message. Yeah. It's at this time that Paul learns that some of the traders have fled out into the desert and they didn't come to this uh, NABE shareholders meeting that Paul called. <laughs> yeah. And Paul orders Stilgar to send a party after them, even though he doesn't really think they'll be captured. They're probably too far ahead at this point. Right. Paul and Stilgar also discuss summoning the Lanshroud Council, which is interesting that the Landstrad keeps coming up so much in these like earlier versions of Dune Messiah. Yeah. 
because like the Lancerod doesn't really play a major role in the final book itself. But basically, Paul and Silgar are wondering whether the council should be called and should be alerted about the uh, stone burner, because the stone burner could not have been fired without using atomics. And that obviously goes against the Great Convention. Right. Paul decides that that's probably the best thing to do and to put some pressure on the guild and the conspirators and the Fremen and everyone involved, he is going to cut off shipments of spice until he gets names, until he figures out where the stone burner and where the atomic materials came from. Right. The chapter then ends with Paul kind of being like uncharacteristically distraught and frustrated at his like inability to control the situation. He can't bring the traitors to justice and he kind of feels at a loss after all of this. Right. I think ultimately, like, it's a fun chapter with B-Jazz and the D-Strands messages and it reveals some of the conspirator names. But reading through it, I definitely got the sense that this was an earlier draft. It, it felt half-baked right. to me. And I think especially considering how so much of Messiah is preordained. Yeah. Right? Like, literally by this time in the book, Paul is following the exact script of his prescient visions. Right, right. And he knows every single thing that's going to happen. Paul fucking already knows who all these conspirators are. He saw it in his visions. So this chapter feels a little bit like an early version that had to be revised once the whole prescience came into play. But it's still a fun chapter. Again, a lot of like death and assassination attempts going around. (laughs) Yeah, they're very action-packed chapters for a book that ended up being not very action-packed. Right, right. You're right. It does feel a little rough. I do love it. I love Banerjee getting hit by the cutter ray. Yo, our boy Banerjee. Banerjee is like an MVP of these chapters. It's super cool. Yeah. Fun chapter. Glad it's not in the final, but fun. Fun to see. For sure. This next chapter is called The Conspiracy's End. And this, again, details something that ends up being off page. <laughs> and again, details something that's very strong in tone, um, dramatically changes the shape of the end of Dune Messiah and is bleak. But it is very interesting to consider as one of Frank's earlier ideas. We are with Irulan, Moheim, and Edric in their prison cell. And timeline-wise, this is when Paul is basically deciding to walk out into the desert. Chani has passed away. The kids are born, right? This is the end of Dune Messiah. Right. Irulan insists, she's like, listen, I got a secure communication. Chani's dead and had twins. We have leverage, guys. We're going to be okay. We're going to get out of here. We've got a bargaining chip. I'm the only option for Paul. Paul's lost Chani. I'm his wife. If they want to have, you know, uh, an empire, he needs me. We've got this. This is great. Moheim and Edric are rolling their eyes so hard. They're like, these, (laughs) she's so, what a sweet, naive child. Right. Uh. They're dismissing her. She's, they're like, this is foolish. Edric throughout the scene is being kind of weird and quiet. And Moheim calls him out. She's like, what the fuck are you weird about? What's going on? He's like, "Eh, nothing. And there's a line where it's like, uncharacteristically, compassion's, compelled him to silence right like he doesn't want to answer her question because he wants to be kind to her yeah he has seen something with his prescience and she figures this out and eventually he does spill the beans he's like guys 
Sit down, if you're not sitting already. Paul just walked into the desert and is dead, basically. So, we are fucking doomed. And when he tells Moheim and Irulan that Paul is dead, Moheim immediately understands. Irulan's like, why would he do that? That's fuck. And she's crying. She's sad. She did actually like Paul. Moheim explains, quote, He had but one life to spend. How else could he spend it to such advantage? It was clever. It was the supreme act of intelligence. We are undone by it. I am filled with envy. End quote. Utterly defeated. Such a powerful quote. Yeah. I mean, again, it's her recognizing the brilliance of that political move. Irulan, perhaps characteristically, is slow on the uptake. (laughs) (laughs) She's panicking. Sweet summer child. Sweet summer child. Edric is like, do you believe in God? She's like, why are you asking that? He's like, I don't know. Religion helps at the time of your death. (laughs) They hear the mob coming. They hear a mob of people coming to kill them. Edric explains, well, listen, Irulan, they blame you. (laughs) Yeah. Quote, they say you killed Chani and this killed Muad'Dib. End quote. Which kind of true. I mean, Paul understood that Chani would die regardless with the birth of their kids. But the mob doesn't know that. So the mob is like, fucking kill her. Yeah. And there's a fantastic conversation here between Edric and Moheim, who at this point, having basically committed to death, knowing that there's really no escape for them, they're just like dropping all the pretense, just chatting, just talking as two people who inhabit this universe. And I love it so much. So... I wanted to share it. And Abu, how do you feel about doing some uh, doing some acting here? Yeah. Let's win those Oscars, baby. <laughs> Let's win those Oscars, baby. As soon as they start offering Oscars to podcasts. <laughs> uh, who do, you, do you want to be Edric? Do you want to be Moheim? How are you feeling? Uh, I'll be Edric. Okay. Sounds good. Once I asked him about religion and his God orientation, it was an interesting conversation. Oh, what did you ask? Among other things, I asked if God talked to him. And he said? He said all men talk to God. And I asked him if he was a God. (sighs) I'll warrant he had a devious answer for that one. He told me that some say so. And I asked him if he said so. And he said that very few gods in history ever lived among men. (laughs) I taxed him with not answering my question. And he said, so I haven't. (laughs) So I haven't. I wish I'd known that. End ah, scene. End scene. Yeah. I, so again, to be clear, I was Moheim <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Abu was Edric. So yeah, this idea of Edric interviewing Paul in some little aside and Moheim being like, oh, I bet he was a smarmy asshole about that. <laughs> Just, I love that tone of that conversation. But the chapter ends, and this brings us to the <laughs> insanely bleak little passage yeah oh my gosh quote presently the door shattered slammed back and the mob poured through the first of them died rather abruptly but a mob is numberless eventually they prevailed and tore the cell's occupants limb from limb (laughs) end quote oh my god good fucking lord frank come on (laughs) like god now it's here that there is a handwritten note from frank quote Reverend Mother can't flee, too old. 
Perhaps she delays the mob for Irulan to escape? End quote. Huh. So he was already kind of maybe toying with the idea of Irulan surviving this last chapter. And considering we love Irulan, thank God, she's a lovely character. She's a wonderful character. Yeah. And I think she contributes a lot to Children of Dune. So I'm glad that that is the case. But still, that is a (laughs) brutal uh, way to end Moheim and and Edric and uh, just yeah, what a way to end a chapter. (laughs) Yeah, that's dark stuff. Yeah. Okay, we have one more chapter we want to talk about that was cut from Dune Messiah. Yeah. This one is called Blind Paul in the Desert. Yeah. And it's actually the original ending to Dune Messiah. This was the final pages of the original draft of the book. Damn. And weirdly enough, despite the title, Paul still has his eyes, like we mentioned earlier. In these early drafts, he doesn't go blind because of the stone burner. That seems to be a thing that was added on later. Right. So in this chapter, we join Paul. He is in a still tent out in the desert going through his frem kit, basically throwing out anything that he feels like he doesn't need out here. Again, his intention is not to survive this trip. He has walked out to die in the desert. Right. But of course, he is an Atreides, and he knows at heart that he can't just take it lying down. He can't die out here like a little punk. (laughs) Right. So he's going to try and survive as long as he can. Quote, He decided that he could not let the planet simply take him. There could be no giving up to destiny for an Atreides, Mm. not even in the full awareness of the inevitable. End Mm. quote. That is so metal, Paul Atreides. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, dude. That's great. (laughs) He is shaken out of his reverie by a huge storm. A mother, a grand, grand, grand mother of storms. (laughs) Yeah. That is fast approaching. Yes. He ditches his still tent. And basically triggers like a sand fall on purpose so that he can bury himself in like a hidey hole of sand, basically. It seems like a pretty cool maneuver, like something he would have learned out in his time in the desert. Right. Quote, it was a mother of a storm up there. He had been right in its path, dead center. There might be a hundred feet of sand through which to burrow free when it passed. End quote. That's reading that. An awful sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Makes me claustrophobic. Yeah, like, what? (laughs) Oh. Like a a literal, like, live burial in the sand. Yeah, he even toys in that moment. He's like, is this my tomb? Like, is this where I die? Appropriate that Muad'Dib would end up dead in a Muad'Dib, like, little burrow. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there is some, like, symbolism there. Yeah. About Paul, like, literally being buried in 100 feet of sand. Right. But no, he survives. Eventually, the storm passes, and he digs his way out of his little hidey hole. Once he's back on the surface, he spots a group of renegade Fremen that he calls the Wild Fremen. Right. Who opted out of the dream for a green Arrakis. These are the Fremen who committed to life in the deep desert, who did not want the new ways and the new Arrakis. They are basically in the process of shooting an ornithopter and summoning a worm, hashtag basic fremen shit and <laughs> yeah. paul briefly entertains this idea of maybe joining them but then ultimately decides against it and watches them leave without drawing their attention right. feeling kind of alone and depressed he starts following the path the worm left right. and the chapter sort of ends on following his steps through the sand we learn that he dropped the frem kit at some point along this path right And here are the final words of the original version of Dune Messiah. 
Quote, Slowing as wariness crept over him, Paul followed the worm track into the wasteland. Prana Bindu training kept his feet moving long after another would have fallen. Even when dawn came, he marched onward. All through the day he marched, and into the next night. On the second day, there was no marcher. Only the wind blowing sand across barren rocks of the basement complex. Rivulets of sand ran around the tiniest extrusions, twisting, changing, ever-changing. End quote. <laughs> credits. <laughs> Roll credits! <laughs> oh, Damn, Frank. Gosh. The man knows how to make me feel things with words. <laughs> what, a, what a painful ending. I know. What a, what a powerful way to end a messiah. And I'm curious, like dying to know why this chapter got cut. Yeah. Because we're not quite sure. Was it a length thing? Was it a word count thing? Was it just that he didn't want us to be with Paul at the end and leave it ambiguous? Right. I don't know. But very powerful stuff here at the end to be with Paul in those final moments as he walks out into the desert. Bleak, but powerful. I mean, maybe, yeah. I mean, cutting the tearing familiar characters limb from limb and tearing watching our hero slowly get weaker as he <laughs> dissolves into the desert and dissolves into <laughs> mythology. Maybe that is the tone that John Campbell hated in that first draft that Frank kind of toned back a little bit. Perhaps. But yeah, you're right, man. It's a solid ending. Not going to lie. I'm like hearing those words as you read them. I was like, this is a good ending to a book. Like yeah. that's just such a good, strong ending. But yeah, there you have it. All of the cut chapters from Dune Messiah, a selection of cut scenes and excerpts from Dune. Ooh. So much. So much. So much. And there was stuff that we didn't talk about that is fine, mostly. I mean, a lot of it's just kind of what we've talked about today, but in scenes that had less to do with <laughs> important stuff. Yeah. Let's wrap up, as we always do, this behemoth uh -huh. of an episode, with <laughs> a question. Now... Abu, beyond the obvious answer of the Alia Edric chapter, which is just spectacular, we can both agree. Uh -huh. yep. Of everything we've talked about today, what is the one scene that you would perhaps magically insert into every copy of Dune or Dune Messiah if you could? Like if you had Ooh. to, if you had the ability to slap one of these in, in retrospect, and everybody's got it, what would you do? Yeah. Dang. First of all, I love the idea of snapping my fingers and all of our listeners opening their copies of Dune tomorrow and being <laughs> like, the fuck is this chapter I never read before? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd go with the Gurney Ernzo backstory stuff. Oh, good call. Yeah. Between Paul and Gurney. We, we kind of touched on it earlier, but I loved that it added so much depth mm -hmm. and history to Gurney Halleck as a character. Yeah. It deepens our understanding of his hatred toward the Harkonnens and specifically Raban later in the book. Yeah. Gurney, of course, goes on to like join the smugglers and he has this like vendetta against Raban and the Harkonnens. We can accept that, but here we're shown why. It's also really nice to see Paul interacting more with his mentors. Oh, true. Here earlier in the book. Yeah. Because in the final draft of dune we basically get like one scene with each of them that introduces who they are and what part they play in paul's life and upbringing but that's about it like we don't go super deep on paul's interactions with all of the people that have effectively raised him yeah and made him into the uh boy and future duke he's meant to be 
So for that reason, I also would have appreciated having this Gurney earn snow scene in there just to have another scene with Paul and Gurney where they're, they're together and we learn more about their relationship. Yeah. Good call, man. Great, great analysis. That's true. What about you though? Of the scenes we've talked about today, which one would you magically bring back into the books? You know, the Gurney Ernso scene, I think is a very strong pick. And that was, I think the first thing to mind for me where I was thinking about, like, that would be great. I also love the way it not only deepens the world building of embellishing the sword and the slave pits and this, the, the fact that Gurney's singing songs around the palace and, you know, Paul rolls his eyes. Yeah, I've heard that song a hundred times. Like, this, this flushes out the universe in a really fun way, but it also, as you're pointing out, deepens our understanding of Gurney as a character psychologically. Yeah. Also, considering Gurney, as all of the characters, like Thufir dies in the first book, Duncan dies in the first book, Gurney's around, obviously not saying anything about Children of Dune, but he's around, right? And in retrospect, reading that first version of Dune, you don't know who's going to be around, who's not. Having an extra scene with Gurney would kind of give him some love that I think is justifiable and makes his survival feel good. Um, but, you know, to to not say just exactly the same chapter as you, <laughs> I'll say the more I've thought about it, the more I really like Blind Paul in the Desert as the ending of Dune Messiah. You know, we'd have to change it, obviously, a little bit to be blinded Paul, blind in the desert. But the more I think about it, the more I like it, man. Like, Later on in the series, someone does basically what Paul does to avoid a storm. And I love that idea of foreshadowing that as like a Fremen technique, you know, of in a in a pinch, a Fremen can do this and it might lead to them dying, but it might not, you know, like I just love establishing Arrakis survival techniques and showing how savvy the Fremen are in the desert is really cool. I also think that it makes his death feel a lot more profound. You know, him walking into the desert to die, obviously there's no ambiguity that that's what's going to happen. Alia and all of the characters who know more about the world than we ever will are like, yeah, he's dead. But still, that it happens off page for Paul Atreides feels very like, I kind of want to be there with him just for a minute. Yeah. I also think the way that that would set up Children of Dune to begin would be good. And if you haven't read Children of Dune yet, don't worry, I'm not spoiling anything. But uh, check out our book club <laughs> because yeah. we're going through it right now. And honestly, seeing stuff in the first Dune book and seeing stuff in Dune Messiah that is cut and adjusted is a lot of fun with like Children of Dune front of mind. I just think it's a strong chapter overall. So... I think yep. that's my that's my pick. For sure. So folks, if you open Dune Messiah tomorrow, you will find the Alia Edric chapter has been crammed in there somehow. <laughs> Wait, we didn't snap. Uh, uh, oh, th right, there. we got a okay. snap. Yeah. Oh, two minutes. Oh, Magic. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I shit, I accidentally added <laughs> the so Thufir How It Fucks chapter. <laughs> oh, oh no. no. Well, no, that's fine. We need to make that canon. Oh, right true. now it's only head canon, but it's gotta be canon canon. <laughs> He's a dad. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Where are his kids? Where's Hawat Jr.? Mintat computation. I don't know. <laughs> Mintat projection. I may be a father. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. <laughs>
Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. This is all a prequel to whatever world wrestling series <laughs> he was in. It was at that <laughs> no. It was at that moment the galaxy smelled what the rock was cooking. <laughs> anyway, that's a that's a wrestling reference. Um oh, okay. I don't sorry, I didn't get that one. It's okay. It's the do you smell what the rock is cooking? Explaining jokes classically, the best way to make them <laughs> suddenly funny. Uh, <laughs> okay.